You can email the show while I've been kicking at Newstalk.com or find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up this morning, Hannah Daly has led an incredible life living in London, New York. She's been on stage, a model, a Rose of Tralee. She's a mum of four, has a master's, works as an occupational therapist and has just published her first book, Knowing No Boundaries. Hannah has severe dyslexia, dyspraxia and sensory processing disorder. She is the reading age of a small child, but as you will hear, she is smashed through any limitations which were often put upon her by systems which aren't inclusive or people who have underestimated her. I worked on the audio version of her book and it's been a pleasure to get to know her over the last while. I cannot wait for you to hear her tell her story. She is one serious force. And Dr Mary O'Kane is a lecturer in psychology and early childhood education. We'll be talking about the challenges of getting decent family time, but the importance of trying to grab those moments. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, what a week it has been. I travelled to Michigan to see my sister and her family and their latest edition, Baby Marley. It was great to see the life that they live there, see things like their house, their neighbourhood, their supermarket, the school. I got to meet lots of their friends and just hang out in that newborn bubble. Is there anything better than their smell, their feet, their sound. I had a ball. She has two other small kids too, so it was lovely to see and and play with them as well. And I know I spoke before I left about focusing on the positive of my sister moving and this trip was definitely a good piece in the jigsaw of that and it was so nice for me to switch off from my own life a bit. Of course, I did ultimately miss my own little family and was checking in on FaceTime and picking them up stuff in the shops, but... I didn't have to pick anybody up or drop anyone anywhere, organise anything. I didn't have to work for a few days. So I have to say it was so good for my brain, my body and my soul. And it's quite snowy over there at the moment. So it was lovely to be driven around a completely different place, just taking in all the different views. There is a reason they say travel is good for the soul. And I'm so grateful to anyone who booked a ticket for my gut health event, which is taking place next week and It's sold out. So it means a lot when you have an idea for something um, that you have a message you want to share and there was people I wanted to bring together. And I'm so pleased that people have got on board and I'm excited for people to come. And I hope everybody will float out armed with lots of knowledge on how to nourish their health. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. Now, family life is busy, often with two parents working and so many demands on not only our time, but the kids' time with activities and whatever else they have going on. So it can be challenging to get decent one-on-one time to check in on each other. Dr. Mary O'Kane is a lecturer in psychology and early childhood education, and she is the author of Perfectly Imperfect Parenting. And she joins me on the line now. Hello, Mary. How are you? Hi, Claire. How are you doing? I'm good. Now, I just want to say on the outset, I don't want people to feel pressured by this conversation that there's more they should be doing on top of the endless lists that we feel we're failing to meet, that now we have to try and spend quality time together. So I think yeah. we're both in on that caveat, aren't we? Oh, absolutely, care. And you know, my whole perfectly imperfect parenting, you know, there's no such thing as a perfect parent. We do the best with what we know at the time and that's it. But I love this idea, Claire, of just trying to connect with our kids again. 
Yeah, it is. It is important. And what does that mean, connecting with our kids? Well, funny, Claire, what started this all for me was a piece of research from the US. And what they did was they asked adults, what are your most vivid memories of when you were a child? So the stuff that still really resonates with you or whatever. And they thought they might say um, really important birthdays or big expensive presents or stuff like this. But they didn't. They said family time. And they were talking about like trips with their families. And I don't mean big expensive holidays fired or anything. It was the silly stuff. You know when you were a kid and your dad would say on a Sunday, oh, we'll take a spin in the car and you'd all pile in. It was all that stuff. It was the little things. Not only did they remember them, but they said they talked to their kids. So say funny things that happened on holidays. And you're so right because even as you said that, when I, I think of my vivid childhood memories, something that just flashed back was my dad's keys that he used to attach to the loop of his belt and, and carry them around in that very cool 80s way. Um, it was that jingling as he just played tag with us in the garden. Um, and, it, you know, it's just that that giving that little bit of time. And sometimes it does take a trip to be able to do that. I mean, it's certainly the only time we ever play board games because we yeah. haven't had to work. We haven't had to go somewhere. We haven't had to sometimes cook dinner or whatever it is, you know, and you're you're really making it at that time. But I think it's really important that you said you, you don't have to spend a lot of money. No, and funny, Claire, that's it. Like, I think of myself and my kids. You know, when you're, you're getting them up and you're getting them into school, they go to school, they come home, homework, and they don't get me started on the homework. But then you maybe have extracurricular stuff, and that's brilliant. But our, our weeks are busy, busy, busy. And I think a lot of us are quite overscheduled. And that's not really quality time. You know I mean? That's really like, I don't know, life. But I think it's good for us all to sometimes think, you know what, I'm actually going to plan um, a little bit of time. And it could be going to the local playground, do you know what I mean? It could be putting them in the car for the spin. You know, it could be going up the road. It could be planning a break. Um, but it, yes, it doesn't have to be the expensive stuff. It's, it's the connection. Funny you say the board games Oh, Claire, just before COVID, I had booked a week away with my kids, myself and my husband and my kids, and we booked a little um, house on the beach. Oh, now, Claire, I was so excited. I had the kids absolutely up to 90. Well, it rained from the moment we arrived till the moment we left. Now, I know with little ones who say, no such thing as bad, bad weather, only bad clothes, but minor teens, well, now, Claire, the side eye, I was getting off them, but... We sat and we started playing card games and board games. Claire, we really connected. We had a laugh. It was like the being kids again. It was lovely. Yeah, because we forget it's a two-way street. I always struggled to play with my kids, to really sit down when they were small on a mat and, you know, kind of do imaginative play because all I could see over their shoulder was clothes to be put away or, you know, dishes from breakfast still there And I used to start tidying their toys, like even while I was sitting there, I really, really struggled with it. But when you find something that you're both enjoying, you get to kind of be a kid too. Like we need to play as well. Yes. Let me see, Claire, that's it. And you see, I'm a bit the same. I was never good at rough and tumble play and stuff. But funny, that same holiday I was talking about, we, the, I mean, the weather was quite miserable. And we ended up saying we'd go paddling anyway. And the waves were crashing. Well, we ended up getting soaked. We just 
got into the water in our clothes. And it's one of the best memories. I have it like as a screensaver on my phone, me and my three kids, soaked wet in our clothes on the beach. But honestly, it was probably one of those times I had real fun with them. You laugh out loud fun. And that's priceless. Yeah. And what do you do when a teenager doesn't want to go with you? Because that's something, you know, that I feel is ahead of me. And I have some friends who have kids that are, you know, a couple of years older. And okay, you're not going to take a 14 year old to the playground with younger kids. But how do you make sure that the family trips are still happening while giving the 15 year old the independence to stay home, you know, on a Sunday by themselves? Like, how do you navigate that whole part of life? I think sometimes as they get older, it's compromise. But one of the things I think really helps getting them away with you is to get them involved in planning what you do. So I've been doing some work with Discover Northern Ireland. So my husband is from Derry. We go up the north all the time because it's obviously his family home for up all the time. So now that mine are older, I would say to them, okay, you go online, pick something that really appeals to you, each of you separately, and we'll see it and we'll have a look at what we're going to do. But funny, I did that with them this year. That Claire, I am a wuss. I'm a real scaredy cat. I'm really scared of heights. And they have picked for me to do this summer. You know, up at the Giants Causeway, you know that Caracoreed rope bridge? Yes, bridge, I mean? yes, yes. I am terrified. And, well, I'm telling you, the three of them are delighted to be going away with me and watching me do that. You know? <laughs> They're really looking forward to it. Mary, I, I, our, Mary, I can assure you, I've done the Gobbins Cliff Path. It's the most protected area. Like, you're literally caged in. I was also fearful. They are huge on health and safety. There was a major talk before we went out. And even my kids, you know, they're they're young. My kids are kind of under 10 when we went. And they were like, I don't think I want to go on this. You're in helmets. You're, you know, harnessed. You're all set. And then when we actually went on it, I thought, oh, my God, it's more dangerous to do the cliff path in Bray. So, you know, you don't tell your kids this, but you have that in your armour. And it is beautiful and it is a lovely thing to do. And it's steeped in history and everything. But uh, no, you're... You, you couldn't be safer, Mary. I laugh. That's another funny memory of ours. Um, so you're right. It's about... And it is the fun. Going it? and having fun. It is. Yeah. And you're all in it together and the screens are down for a little while. And is that the emphasis exactly. on a trip is to just have fun? Or are you trying to get your kids to open up about worries at school or worries about friendship? Or are you trying to get yeah. that out of them or do you just let that happen naturally? Well, do you know something, Claire, that I think it can really be helpful to get them away? Particularly after COVID and after the last years, I had so many parents saying to me that their kids are maybe struggling a bit with anxiety or they're, they're worried or they're... COVID has sort of had an impact on a huge number of families. Now, that's another thing for getting away, and it's pushing you out of your comfort zone a little bit. So now, I'm putting my, pushing myself way out of my comfort zone going up there and doing that. But we talk about safe risk-taking and psychology and it's sort of pushing your kids into doing things that's just slightly outside their comfort zone. And when if they do stuff like that that makes them a bit nervous, they might get butterflies in their tummy, like they might feel sweaty pants. So they're feeling anxiety. But they're learning to evaluate risk and they're finding out what happens to their bodies when they're scared, but they're learning they can cope. And they're learning... Sometimes life can be a bit scary, but you know what? I'm brave. I can do this stuff. And there's no better way of doing that 
them with us, like we're their little safety blanket doing it. So in terms of anxiety and worries, that getting away where you're all maybe doing something a little bit challenging is really, really good for them, good for their mental health. Well, like you and the rope bridge, because I mean, maybe we are talking about a different rope bridge and you are going to be challenged, but you're going to use that time and time again when they feel there's something they can't do. And can I ask, just as you mentioned, Derry, have you been to the Halloween festival up there? Oh my, there's nowhere like Derry in Halloween. So I've been going up there for years. Funny, I'd never been up to Derry until I met my husband, which now is about 30 years ago at this point. But, oh, my gosh, it's fabulous. Wonderful as Halloween. But do you know what I think, Claire? Dairy Girls. When Dairy Girls came out, well, first of all, it made me laugh. It was like watching a documentary. It could have been in my mother-in-law's kitchen. But it made, I think, the rest of Ireland realise that the people of Dairy are just gorgeous. They have a streak of madness in them, but they're just gorgeous. There's so much to do up there. But you know what the best thing is? The people. It really is. Yeah. And Dairy Girls Mural. I have my kids up there having their, their picture taken in one bath. You know, it's, that's a really good one to do. Yeah, no, I went a couple of times with Ireland AM um, and what I thought was just going to be a work trip. I, I've been back with my oh, family. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm kind of jealous you have a family connection there. Well, look, thank you, because as ever, your advice is you know, evidence-based, but it's it's relaxed, it's have fun, it's take time because what yeah. you're doing is making memories and take Making the pressure off yourself. Just, yeah, yeah, just have fun and, and people can keep that in mind as yeah. we plan for the summer. Dr. Mary O'Kane, lecturer in psychology and early childhood education and author of Perfectly Imperfect Parenting. Thank you so much as ever. Thanks, Claire. You're listening to the podcast of Alive and Kicking, which is broadcast on News Talk on Sunday mornings. Anna Daly is an occupational therapist, often working with children with dyslexia and dyspraxia, as she does. She has an understanding of living in a world which sometimes doesn't support or isn't as inclusive as it could be. She's documented her incredible life in her recently published book, Knowing No Boundaries, which I am so proud to be the voice of, along with Hannah herself, on the audiobook. And Hannah Daly joins me in studio now. Hannah, you're very welcome. Thank you. Good morning. I was very happy to have you on the show because I accepted the job as a, an audiobook job, as I do from time to time. And I really learned so much by hearing your story um, as I read through it and then recorded it. Um, and I don't use the term incredible Loosely, you have lived an incredible life, which I want to get into. But tell me first about why you want to write the book. Um, As you said, I have profound dyslexia, dyspraxia and sensory processing disorder. Um, Growing up, I always felt a strong sense of feeling different, but didn't necessarily understand what those labels meant. And as I went through my childhood, I picked up the different labels. Um, When I was 2008, I became the Dublin Rose of Tralee. Um, and spoke about having dyslexia and dyspraxia and realised that my experiences were of use to other people and were relevant. Um, so I started to be invited to do talks about just growing up myself, about my life. And from there, I um, decided I actually wanted to go back and be an occupational therapist. So then when I trained as an occupational therapist, I thought this is brilliant. Um, I know the science behind you know these conditions but actually the lived experience is nearly 
as important and I wanted to get that down. Um, and also when I was doing the talks, people kept saying like, would you write a book? And I'm saying, no, no, I've nothing to write a book about because for me, my life was ordinary. I didn't know anything different. Um, and I also didn't have the skills to write a book. But when I started to work um, as an occupational therapist, um, I got very effect, uh, very good at uh, dictating. So I decided this is how I wanted to dictate it. And that's kind of where this, this story evolved, if that makes sense. Yes. So can we talk about what you said? You don't have the skills to write a book because even though you have lived across the world, you're a mum of four, you've studied to master's level, you are now working as an occupational therapist. You actually have the reading and writing ability of a small child. Yeah, I have the reading age of a seven year old and that's because of my dyslexia. Now, I, I as I talk about in the book, I went to like a special reading school, like it's not from want of trying to you know, gain those skills. But for me, it didn't happen. Um, And what we decided to do was put all our energy and focus into things I was good at in order to to get beyond. Because if I was only a mediocre reader, but couldn't, you know, tell you about, you know, geography, history or art history, then that wouldn't really do me much good, would it? And I'm not living my life. Imagine being asked to like spend your whole day doing something that you're rubbish at. And at the end of it, you still aren't mastering those skills. It's that, you know, that's demoralising, that self-esteem is really impacted. So that's where the reading difficulty for me is. So, for example, simple things like, you know, if you go to the ATM and the money doesn't come out, then you're like, why isn't the money coming out? And I think sometimes writing comes up and you're not sure, like, do you not have enough funds or what's going on? So even things that people take for granted, um, I... I'm very good when I've learned a pattern of um, like a form or a program or a certain kind of template, but then things change or the unexpected happens. And that's when I'm like, oh, yeah, I can't read. (laughs) So it's kind of just those little things that um, affect the reading. And then in terms of the writing, um, I have this thing called dyspraxia. So I don't know if you want me to talk about what dyspraxia is a little bit. Okay, so dyspraxia clinically might be like having difficulties with your fine and gross motor. So what do we mean by fine motor? We mean like... Tying your shoelaces, using a knife and fork, um, handwriting, buttoning your buttons um, and doing all those kind of simple, I say simple in inverted commas here, things. Gross motor is climbing, walking, jumping, skipping. And it doesn't mean that, you know, I walked in here today, you know, and I've buttoned my buttons. But it's the way at which a person does it and the speed at which they do it um, is, is kind of how you note that there's a difficulty there. Or for example, I didn't crawl. So I just went straight to kind of walking. Um, I'd be very heavy handed. So if I'm like closing a car door, like it'd be like, you know, big bang. Um, Or else I'd miss, I'd put the cup down, but it's not exactly where I thought it was going to be. And then it spills. So it's those little simple, you know, I can laugh about them some days, but other days I can't. Some days it's quite upsetting. Um, And that's where the handwriting was an issue for me. So as well as the being able to hold the pencil correctly and, you know, form the different letters and then spell a word, the spaces would be like big or small or the letters would be tiny and then they go big and then I'd get pain in my wrist and pain in my shoulders. And it's just kind of, yeah, and I can't read it. No one can read what's written on the page um, or I might rip the page if I'm too heavy handed. Um, so that's the reading and writing component. But obviously there's more, there's more ways of getting information out there. 
um, instead of just having to write it down, you can type it or you can dictate it or you can draw a picture of it. There's loads of other ways. So actually, it's not in my book, this story. But when I was in university doing my performing arts degrees, my teachers were like amazing. And one of the lecturers let me do a video essay. So I was like picking up books going, as Grotowski says, you know, um, as Death of the Author says, and that I just presented my essay. And that's what's so amazing in your book and why it's called Knowing No Boundaries because you just always found a way. Now, obviously, partly that's fueled by having to find a way to progress in life, but there was also a real innate self-belief that not everybody would have because of some of the things you spoke about that might be a challenge to you. Society expects that of, of people. That's how it's set up with the ability to read, the ability to write, and the ability to 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 fit in and, and conform, and and that was a real a real challenge and a difficulty. Yeah, um, I had a very I have a wonderful mom, as, as I think comes across in the book. I hope um, I had someone who believed in me and would fight my corners with me, um, or help me fight my corners, which is even probably a better gift we can give our children. As a mother now, it's a better gift we can give our children to give them the tools and the belief that they can achieve and they are worth something. Um, I also, yeah, I have a drive. I've always been very, very driven. You know, from a very young age, I'd always be like, I can do this. Um, let me have a go. Um, and just just would be, you know, brave and again in commas. I was no fear of failing because I've experienced so much failure in my life that I just see it as part of learning. And when you fail, it gives you opportunities to grow. Um, I also had to be very vulnerable, I suppose, and rely on other people. But that's, I hope that message comes across in the book too, that the connections with other people and the relationships that I form are such a key role. Like we never know when we're influencing someone's life in a positive way or a negative way. Um, And we all have the capacity to do that, whether it's just saying hello to someone one day or helping someone fill in a form or just, you know, giving someone the time to 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 let them tell you what's going on for them because they might be having a meltdown or they might be feeling really stressed and by you just lending an ear actually that helps them calm and regulate themselves so we we just don't know so there's a point in that story in the book where I meet this lady in a 99p shop and I she happens to be from Ireland and we swap numbers but I'm like I've never called her this is a bit unusual she was a lot old, a bit older than me and then I went into university because I was studying the UK as opposed to Ireland I didn't get the supports, um, disability supports as easy because the funding came to Ireland. It took it was a, a bureaucracy kind of issue, and I ended up giving that lady a call, and she wrote letters, and then she helped me with my you know reading early days. And she was a primary school teacher at the time, and she's subsequently now an educational psychologist. So isn't it funny how people and a really good friend of mine, you know? So isn't it funny how these little interactions we never know how how they can be? And I think maybe my relationships are really strong with people now because I've had to rely on each other each other a little bit. So yeah, that and show your vul- vulnerability and really just be you. And when they meet you as you, then that forms a bond. And we should never underestimate the power of a ninety nine p shop. <laughs> <laughs> I often joke and say you're the best thing that came out of a ninety nine p shop. <laughs> um, but also. Yes, we we do live in a world that's very read and write, but we also, if you think about it, we're storytellers, especially like that's where a lot of our information does come down to for over the years before people could read and write. You know, we we tell stories and that's connecting with people. So we need to connect with people um, as well. I've probably deviated a little bit here. but No, but I think it's a really, really good point. Um, and 
we Irish really do it. You know, we kind of connect in a queue. We talk about the weather and it's just, who cares about the weather? It's just a connection, a point of connection. And you're saying there's real power in that because you never really know what's going on for that other person. And that smile or that comment might mean the change of their day or even more. Can we go back a little? Because I want to return to college and what you achieved there. But can we talk about school? Because I think it's really important that we start to talk about neurodiversity and inclusion in our schools a little bit more. We've come a long way, but we still have a lot further to go. So tell me about your experience with school. Um, I probably I I wanted to learn. I wanted to go to school. I had a uniform before I even was in, you know, primary school. Like when I was in uh, Nienra and play school, I had a new uniform. Um, but when I actually went to school, that's when the issues came up for me first. I'd learned the Ann and Barry books off by heart and then realised that I wasn't actually able to read. And then that had its own difficulty. But because and a lot of parents today are still waiting for assessments. A lot of people wait a long time, even though they feel in their, their gut there's something not quite right, but they don't have the, the answers. Um, so I waited till I was nearly t- nine, I think, nine or ten before I had my conclusive d- diagnosis of dyslexia anyway. People didn't understand dyspraxia. It was just like, I'd grow out of it. You know, it's a motor thing. Um, and I was just a bit of an annoying child who kind of would fall a lot and who would be in everyone's space all the time. Um, I also have the sensory processing stuff is interesting because I probably didn't really understand it until I went back and qualified in as an occupational therapist, but more so did my postgrad in sensory integration. So one example of this is I'd move around a lot and that would be perceived as being naughty. But actually when I move is when I process and take in information. And a lot of kids, as you said today even, will be, you know, described as like on the on the go, a, a real fidgeter or, you know, and can't sit still. And actually there's a reason for that child. It's not they're not just being destructive disruptive. They actually are struggling to to process information when they sit still or they're trying to hold their posture and it's not comfortable when they have to sit still. Um being different, um you I perceived it myself. So if I perceived it that I felt different than others did too. And peers would have, you know, I don't know whether it's fear or maybe I was a little bit annoying too because I was struggling. Um, but I was, I, I, I had experienced a few times bullying um, and that's really hard because I suppose my reference point has always been like the movies <laughs> and like people always have friends in the movies. Um, and that's how I envisioned, you know, my life to be, but it wasn't that way for me. Um and then how I was given information wasn't useful. Um, so there was times in my life in some of the schools I went to where the understanding of difficulties of a disability like dyslexia wasn't wasn't regarded. Um, and that had had a negative effect for me. Then when I was in school, I still wasn't reading and writing. So you didn't know how much information I was taking in or not taking in. Um, and I'd get my mum to like scribe for me sometimes if we had time to do it. But it wasn't until my junior cert that I first used a reader and a scribe in a proper capacity. So if you think about it, every other child is learning to write since the age of four or five and used to that read-write format from little exams every year. My first using that kind of, using a reader and a scribe or doing an exam was when I was in third year. 
Wow. And I mean, there were times you talk in the book where you were forced to read aloud, um, you know, and that's really tough to just hit that wall again and again and again, even even after diagnosis or that assumption that you weren't paying attention, that you were being disruptive, that you were a messer, that you weren't applying yourself when in fact you were doing all of that and with the right tools, you could soar to master's level, which you have now done. And I've been, two things are really coming to my mind. I've been on a training course with other parents because my son got a mild dyslexia diagnosis and that was given free through the school. So that was amazing. And the leader really stuck out to me. And she was talking about how the current learning system leaves a huge cohort of people out. Whereas if we adapted our learning to include that cohort, although that cohort is all on a various spectrum, it would actually be inclusive of everybody. Everybody would benefit from moving about a little bit more with their learning, from adapting our learning skills. But we're not we're not doing that and we're doing that at a, a really slow pace. And there is a whole new movement of, of change maker schools. And I was lucky to be involved in that as well. And you know, there's forest schools and just different ways of learning, but it's still so small uh, and more really needs to be done. And I think it's not just that one one shoe fits all. It's having the option to move around, maybe, because another child will need to stay still and be quiet because they need a time out or another child might need to sit at the very top of the desk, which is important. Um, but the... I think, and I talk about it in the book as well, the shape sorter, as you said, that everybody is different and everyone is unique. Basically, if you think of a kid's shape sorter with like triangles, squares, diamonds, whatever, lots of different shapes. I'm a, tri- I'm, a, I'm a triangle. Most people might be a circle or conventional ways of doing things might be a circle. And if you shove a triangle through the circle opening, it won't fit. But if it does fit, it's going to be broken and it's going to be in with the other ones. But it's an interpretation of, uh, of, a, of a circle. And it's that whole idea of masking as well as, you know, forcing something, someone into something. So no matter how much you shout at me or tell me to stand up and read, it's not going to happen. It's not because I'm not compliant. I don't have the capacity to do that. And I'm okay with that now. But the trauma of being forced to do that is you can't take that back. Um, But if you take the time to turn the shapes order and understand that there's another way for the triangle to, to exist in society by putting it through the triangle shape, that person can be employed, that person can be happy, that person can give back to society and feel good about themselves. There's no reason why we need to break people down. What we actually need to do is build people up. Um, and yeah, because it also has a knock-on effect for the mental health services and yeah. unemployment rates. And we kind of spoke about childhood and, and, and your school. We touched on it a little bit. And yes, indeed, your mum does come across as an absolute superhero. Um, in the book. But let's talk about then college. You you did um, creative arts and went to London to live, which is bold and brave in itself, a move I didn't have the nerve for. But off you went. And it's so interesting, like you said, some of the things that people would really take for granted, you kind of slam up against, such as you you, you got a job so that you could pay your way and you would then had to set up a bank account and the form filling is just like an assault course <laughs> for you to get through. Tell us about that experience. Yeah, so um, I am proactive. I'll take forms home if I can. So that's exactly what I did. I took the form home and the lady I met in the 99P store filled the form in for me. And then I had my appointment. So if you open a bank account back then anyway, you had a set time to come and sit to open it formally with your passport. When I got there, the passport 
she saw that it was Irish and not English and she took my form, ripped it up and presented me with a new form. And I, my stomach went, oh my gosh, okay, what will I do? Oh no, I'll ask for help. So I'm like, oh, I'm really sorry. Um, I'm very dyslexic. Um, would you mind, can we use that form? And she said, no. And I said, okay, would you mind helping me fill in the form? And she's like, oh, right, okay. And I was explaining about, you know, the dyspraxia and the dyslexia component, why I couldn't do it. And she started filling the form and she's like, what's your address? And then I was like telling her the name of the address. She goes, how do you spell that? And I'm like, I don't know. But that form in the bin, you know, has all the details. And she's like, oh, you're too smart to be dyslexic. <laughs> and I was kind of like, huh. you know, and it kind of made me feel like, do you think dyslexic people are stupid? Did I just say dyslexic people are stupid by going, huh? Um, but I needed that bank account because I was, you know, had I not had the bank account, I would have lost my job because they needed to pay me within a certain time period. Um, and I needed the money because I was studying in the UK and it was expensive. So it's, it kind of goes, it's cyclical. But that has always been, you know, a, a massive thing for me. How do you spell? And I don't know half the time. Um, and... Yeah, so there are certain things. Likewise, I went to the library to try and listen to an audio book instead of reading it because I couldn't read the coursework, obviously. And again, there's more forms before you get to the next step. And I think that that's something that we, like, there obviously needs to be a way of, of um, you know, formalising um, access to things. But equally, does it always have to be read-write? So I go to the, I went to the post office, I was saying, and you return stuff. And again, the lady's like, ta-da, here's a form. And I'm like, can you help me? And she's like, yeah, no problem. And the difference of someone saying, yeah, no problem is massive. My self-esteem doesn't go down to being like a little small girl being asked to read out loud or not being allowed entrance because I can't read or write. Um, so that's a massive thing. The social component of dyspraxia is probably something else that was more noticeable when I went to university as well, because suddenly you're living with people. And you're having to get on with things that I didn't necessarily realise was a big issue until I was having to to do it in the real world. Um, like I have, a, I talk, speak about as well, I didn't know how to use cutlery correctly. Um, so I had a lovely boyfriend that taught me how to do it. And it's just the little things that other people, and maybe there was naivety when I went to England. I didn't know what was ahead of me. So I wasn't afraid. I just got on with it. And I was so used to finding solutions to doing things that um, it, it didn't it didn't dawn on me that it might be as tough as it was. And I wanted you to tell that story because of the comment that girl in the bank made. Because I do still think that even though we talk an awful lot more about neurodiversity, that there is an association with intelligence and dyslexia. And I think we need to start smashing that down. And your book certainly does that because you were well capable. You just needed a different way of of accessing the information. And you were forced to find these ways yourself. Like, tell people about the exam or the assignment that you wrote on um, Macbeth. Oh, yeah. So again, that was in secondary school. So we were to compare um, comparative studies, uh, a novel we'd read to the play we were studying, which at the time was Macbeth. And again, I came home feeling rubbish. This is probably pre, this is before like Audible existed, you know, where now it's amazing that we can access way more, you know, information. But I came home, I was like, I can't do this assignment. I'm not going to school tomorrow. You know, it was that sense of not wanting to, to be to be ridiculed or wrong or left out. So instead, uh, my mum's like, well, what books have you read? And I was like, oh, like rubbish kids ones you know and then it, I used I used one of the ones I'd read which was the gingerbread man um, very simple story where everyone wants to eat the 
gingerbread man and the fox says, I don't want to eat you. Take Haven here. I'm safe. And he eats him. And the same kind of happens in Macbeth. Duncan is worried that he's going to be, you know, he's going to be attacked or whatever. And he's lured into a false sense of security um, by Macbeth and he kills him. So similar enough. It's that kind of, you know, and it's just, but that's all, that's what it's about. It's not about reading and writing. It's showing information, showing that I understood the concept of Macbeth and that I can apply it in other situations. And I think that's sometimes what you need to go back and learning those lessons in life is nearly more useful than reading 20 or 30 or 40 books because that's that's life. And you came up against that when you decided you wanted to be an occupational therapist, as you mentioned, because you were told, no, you can't do this. How are you going to write client notes? You can't type them up. What about GDPR? You can't have a scribe. And every time you're told a no, you just say, let's find another way. Yeah. Why not? What, what, what can we do? Yeah. And I think that that's really important that we find other ways. So if it's a safety issue, grand, we won't use that. We'll do this something different. But don't just hear no, um, which is kind of, yeah, knowing no boundaries. Knowing no boundaries is kind of a bit of a play in the word, too, because in terms of the sensory component and, you know, understanding where your body is in space, sometimes other people's boundaries are a little bit hard to blur. You know, some people will describe their kids as being like in each other's space or not getting those social cues. Um, as well as also obviously being restricted and being told, no, this is, this is your box, stay in your box. Or, and for me, it's like, well, why, why, why not? Um, but that does take confidence and it shouldn't be that hard. It shouldn't, like, yes, I have, I have drive, but what about all the other people who have loads to offer the world and loads of potential but don't have the drive or the self-belief? Um, and, like, don't get me wrong, it does hit me, like, I was doing a postgrad um kind of we do lots of postgrad we always do training um as therapists CPD and I was doing a postgrad course and basically the um the lecturer put up a slide and said oh sure we everyone can read it themselves and I put my hand up and said oh would you mind reading it and she goes sure everyone can read and I remember sitting and it was it was at that it wasn't just it my my body my brain went to shut down and suddenly it was trauma of being asked to read you know I felt like locked out of that session she might as well have asked me to leave the the course you know, and so sometimes we just need to be a bit more mindful. To, are we being inclusive? Yeah, no, because I watched when we touched on school and I spoke about you being asked to read, your your eyes actually filled with tears and you didn't cry, but you can see it's still there. And that's so many years later. So these things don't go away and we need to remember that with people. Yeah, but it's also the thing that gives me the kick and, and why I why I am an occupational therapist and why I fight so much for, you know, the child I work with. Because we... I, I know how it feels. So it's that lived experience matters and I don't want anyone else to feel the way I felt. And it's, it's they don't need to either. You've also had to really rely on your intuition and at the book launch you were asked, how do you manage with four kids? And I think anyone with four kids gets asked that. One of my best friends has four and she said every time she went out to the supermarket or, you know, the park, one of the kids said to her one time, why do people keep saying your hands are full, mommy? Because that's all anybody ever said. Yeah. <laughs> so I think anybody with four is going to get that. But you said it's because you didn't read all the books, because oh, yeah. you don't go online. You just... I just was a mom. I just They were just my babies. They came out, they were mine, you know, and I just did what felt right. And I think absolutely that's... And one, I remember one guy we met in England was like, you can tell you don't watch the news or read the newspapers. And I was like, is that an insult? And he's like, no, you think about the world so differently, you know, because I'm not being told how to feel or think. And I think that, that that's really important too. We all need to go back and say, who am I? What what matters to me? 
rather than what these new fads are, you know, what we're told to, to feel and think. Um, because there's no one way of living a life. Um, and there's no one way to parent. And yeah, like I have four very young kids, quite closely stacked. So I get that a lot. Even young, even other people's kids say, oh God, your hands are full. <laughs> <laughs> but like, it is like, I wouldn't change it. Um, and yeah, there was, there was no preconceived ideas. Um, but equally, I think I can't be anything but me. And I've stopped trying to not be me. And some people will love me and some people won't. And that's okay as long as I love myself. Um, I know that sounds like, Meh. but actually it, there is a truth behind that because you can only be you. Yeah. And there's a strength in that. Well, I'm in the love camp. I think <laughs> you are an amazing oh. force. The book is such an important read for people, not just to smash down the boundaries and the misconceptions around neurodiversity and people who are in any way different to that one shape that we are looking for here in society. And that right other shape wrongly. is good though as well. Yeah, <laughs> but everybody is different and everybody is important. Um, and I think not only do you tell that lesson, but it's for anybody who needs that push or that motivation to just be themselves and live their life. That's what the book is about too. It's called Knowing No Boundaries by Hannah Daly. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. So yes, Knowing No Boundaries is available now and is on Audible. And for more, you can go to knowingnoboundaries.com. Thank you for listening to the podcast of Alive and Kicking, News Talk's health and wellness show. If there's ever a topic you'd like covered on the show or you'd like to comment on one which has already been on, you can always email aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. If you enjoy listening to the podcast, I would so appreciate if you would rate, subscribe and share with a friend.